lives on this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have come to December 11th. We're kind of right in the, in the, in the core, in the middle of the holiday season. How many of you are feeling rested? Feeling good? Nobody? Awesome. This is kind of the time of year where you begin to carry the fatigue of all, that, of all that's going on. We usually feel the opposite of rested. Usually holiday season is, is a lot more like that, that scene in Home Alone where uh, the power goes out and so their alarm clocks don't go off on time and they have to wake up and they're rushing around the house. They're running like crazy. They sprint through the airport. That's essentially what the holiday season can feel like for a month or so. Just that, that rush, that busyness. So maybe you feel exhausted at this point. Maybe you feel spent, frazzled, busy, either from the holiday season or from the school year so far, from what work is like, from stuff going on in your family, life in general, just the, the fatigue from making it to the end of another year and all that this year held for you, whatever that was. But rested is not typically a word we would use to describe, our, describe ourselves at the end of each year. I don't think anybody comes to Christmas season or the new year and said, man, I just feel really rested. I've never heard someone say that. And restful is not how we would describe the month of December. It's not necessarily bad. It's just what it is. But that's really ironic because though we find Christmas time to be tiring and busy, the meaning and message of Christmas is about rest. It's about rest. Jesus was born into this world to bring us rest. I don't mean a nap, physical nap, but I mean rest for our souls. And you hear this in, in popular Christmas carols. And in A Holy Night, it says, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Why would a weary world rejoice? Well, because the one was just born to bring them rest for their weariness. And come thou long expected Jesus, and I'm not singing these for you. So you're, you're welcome. That would not bring any of us into the Christmas spirit. But it, it says this, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Let us find our rest in thee. Jesus the Redeemer came to bring everlasting rest to restless people who live in a restless world. This is why he came, to bring everlasting rest to a restless people living in a restless world. And during this Advent season, we are walking through the story of Ruth. We've said the story of Ruth is kind of the, the story behind the story of Christmas. And this story is perfect for restlessness, perfect for those who feel weary for whatever reason. And as we step into chapter 3 this morning, we're going to see how and where you and I can find deep, lasting rest for our souls, even in the midst of the weariness of life. So let's turn to Ruth chapter 3, if you're not there already. Ruth chapter 3. Ruth is a short, really short story in the Old Testament, right after the book of Judges, right before First and Second Samuel, if you're trying to kind of find where it is. And if you want to use the church Bibles in front of you, Ruth 3 is on page 223. 223, Ruth chapter 3. As you're turning there, I just need you to know, after many comments that I get the past couple weeks, when I'm standing up here, I'm aware that there's fire next to me. 
A lot of you have said, Cam, did you see that that candle was, and the wax was forming like a sculpture on the, yes, I'm watching it. Every time I look over here, do a quick little, are we about to catch on fire? No, we're good. All right, back over here. So just one, so we don't have to be distracted by that. I'm aware I'm standing next to fire. And we, I know there's plenty of you that would save us if something bad happened. But we'll just keep going and notice these are candles. We've all been around candles. It's all okay. All right, it's good. All right, Ruth chapter 3. We're, we're hitting the halfway mark of the story. It's only four chapters. We're getting ready to start chapter three. And up to this point, we have followed this family that has lived, the author tells us, in the days when the judges ruled. And we've seen multiple weeks now that that day, that time of, of in the people of Israel's life was characterized by this phrase, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Not really the best time to live in Israel. And this family was living in this hopeless time, in the time of the judges. And the story started with six people. It started with Naomi and her husband, their two sons, and their two sons' wives. Naomi and her family had left Bethlehem in Israel to go to Moab because there was a famine. There was no food. People were hungry. People were starving. And they lived in Moab for about 10 years. While they were in Moab, though, this family... That started with four when they went and became six when their sons got married in Moab. That family lost their, the husband. Naomi's husband passed away. And both of her sons died while they were in Moab. In the midst of this grief and difficulty, they catch word that there's food back in Bethlehem. So they decide, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law decide, we're going to go back to Bethlehem. And on the way, there's this kind of crisis moment, this crossroads moment where Naomi tells her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, you guys don't need to go with me. You're from Moab. Go back to your families in Moab and stay there. That's going to be better for you. There's no future for you with me. After some conversation back and forth, Orpah decides to go back, but Ruth stays with Naomi, and they go to Bethlehem. And Ruth is going to be an outsider in Bethlehem. She's not from there. She's from Moab, an enemy of the people of Israel. She would not be welcome there. And they, they get back and they just scrape by. Back in that time, women on their own without a son, without a husband, without someone to provide for them, there was no hope for them. And I understand that kind of pushes against kind of how we think in our world today. And, but that's just how it was. That's just how it was. And they're scraping by and this family that was six people now returns just two people and they're in Bethlehem trying to make it, and Ruth decides to go and gather leftover grain from the fields outside the city. She said, we have to have food somehow. We have to be able to make it and survive somehow. So she goes to the fields outside the city, and the author told us back in chapter 2, she happens to end up in a field belonging to a man named Boaz. And we know this is no accident. The Lord is working this out, because as we find out, Boaz, Ruth goes, gathers and gathers, Boaz is so kind, shows the Lord's kindness to her, provides for her. Ruth brings all this stuff back to Naomi, and Naomi says, my daughter, where were you today? Where did you work? And Ruth says, I was in this field, belonged to just a guy named Boaz. And Naomi said, Boaz? He, he's a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And here's how, the end of, here's how chapter 2 ended. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 23. 
So she, this is talking about Ruth. She kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Naomi and Ruth lived through and survived those two harvest seasons because of the Lord's kindness through Boaz. And Ruth gleaned day after day through the barley harvest, through the wheat harvest, but those harvests are coming to a close, so what's next? That helped them then, but what's going to help them moving forward? Well, as we step into chapter 3, you're going to see a really similar structure to what chapter 2 had. In chapter 2, it was Naomi and Ruth talk, Ruth and Boaz talk, Naomi and Ruth talk. This is the same thing. Naomi and Ruth are going to talk, Boaz and Ruth are going to talk, and then Naomi and Ruth are going to talk. But this time, in chapter 3, it all takes place at night. It's all in secret, but there's a reason for that. Let's jump into chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? There's our word. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? Remember I said Jesus is the redeemer who came to bring rest for restless people that live in a restless world? Here's the first hint that this might be moving in that direction. Naomi tells Ruth, shouldn't I seek rest for you? Maybe your translation says home or security, but the same, the same idea is there. And what's interesting about Naomi wanting to find rest and security for Ruth is she prayed for this for Ruth. She prayed back in chapter 1 when they were trying to figure out if they were going to go with Naomi or go back to Moab. Naomi prayed this for her daughters-in-law. This is chapter 1, verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Ruth and Naomi are just getting by on temporary provisions. They have no long-term solution to their problems yet. And what they've been given is good, but Naomi is saying, shouldn't we get a deeper rest? Shouldn't you have something more permanent? Shouldn't you have something more lasting here for yourself? So we have to wonder who's going to take care of them, who's going to provide for them. And then we see this in verse 2. Naomi says to Ruth, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? So, So again, we're reminded, this is the third time in the story, third chapter, third time we're reminded that Boaz is a relative of Ruth and Naomi. That may not mean anything to you right now, but we're gonna see the connection coming. The narrator makes sure that we don't lose sight of that truth. He wants us to remember that. Then she says this, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So Naomi knows these two harvests are over, Boaz and his men are going to be at the threshing floor harvesting their crops. They're going to be seeing what all they've gathered in, and this is the place where the potential of the harvest you've worked so hard to get starts to come to fruition. And I think that's the exact same thing going on in the story itself. Here's her plan for Ruth. She says this in verse 3. Here's what she tells Ruth to do. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Stop right there. I don't think this is, she's not telling Ruth to, like, put on these amazing clothes, and she's going to look so beautiful for Boaz. I think Ruth's husband and father-in-law passed away. Ruth's been in a time of mourning, and there was mourning dress that you wore. The same description 
is used of King David later on in the Bible after a period of time after his son passes away. It says the same thing. David washed himself, anointed himself, and put on his clothes. So this is what's happening. She's saying, Ruth, take off your mourning clothes and go to Boaz. Then here's what she says next, verse 4. She says, don't make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. And then here's verse 4. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Naomi has a plan. I don't think Naomi is scheming here. I don't think she's trying to control things. I think she wants what is best for Ruth. I think she trusts Boaz's character from what she's seen from him so far. And it's likely Ruth doesn't know the customs and commands and traditions of the people of Israel. She didn't grow up in Israel. She grew up in Moab. They didn't know anything about the commands of God. So Naomi's walking her through, here's how this is going to go. Here's what you need to do. But it's in secret. Go to him at night. Lay at his feet. Because she wants to protect Ruth's character and reputation. She wants to protect Boaz's character and reputation. Now, understand, when you first read Naomi's plan, go watch where he lays down, then uncover his feet and lay down at his feet. I know that sounds really strange. What is Naomi wanting Ruth to do here? We're going to see the meaning of it when we see the plan in action. But after hearing this plan, Ruth tells her in verse 5, all that you say, I will do. But what I want us to see there in that first scene is that both Naomi's planning and Ruth's following are both pictures of faith. They do not know how this plan will play out. They're taking a risk, but they're trusting in God's faithful care of them. They've seen in the earlier scenes of their life, the earlier chapters for us in the story, they've seen glimpses of God's kindness. They've seen glimpses of God's steadfast love for them, and they're trusting God to continue to show up. God to continue to take care of them. And remember, as we've read through this story, we have seen God at work in ways the people in the story didn't know about. But though the people in the story couldn't always connect the dots, God was doing a lot of his work through the people in the story. The Lord has plans for the world, and he has plans for each person in the world. But those plans are often carried out through human means. Through our decisions and our plans and our strategies and our situations, God's work in your life and my life does not, stop where, does not start where our work stops. It's not like God is saying, well, only I can be working or you can be working. We both can't be working. No, oftentimes, his work is ongoing all the time through our actions, through our decisions, through our conversations, through our relationships, through our circumstances. And you and I can make plans and carry out responsibilities and we can take risks knowing God is never not at work in our lives. We can take risks because it's impossible for God to take a risk. So we take a risk leaning on him. I just want us to see here that faith is not passive in the sense that we don't do anything, we just trust God. Like, man, why are you just standing there? Why are you not trying to go figure this out and change the situation and fix this? Well, I'm just trusting God. That's not faith. Faith is, I may not always know what God is doing, but I can always know who he is, and I'm going to trust him 
and take steps and make decisions and even take risk precisely because I trust him. So Naomi's given Ruth a plan, and now Ruth is going to be on her way to carry out that plan. Here's how it, here's how it plays out in verse 6. So she went down to the, thre- to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. So Ruth sneaks onto the threshing floor. This is not a small thing. This is at night. This is dangerous. This is risky. This has the potential to blow up in her face. It's not a safe situation for a young woman like Ruth. The threshing floor was a place where a bunch of men worked and worked hard all day. And it's nighttime, and it's the time of judges when there's no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is not a safe place for Ruth. But here's what happens next, verse 7. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. After a hard day's work, Boaz eats, he's satisfied, he's content, and he lays down to sleep before he has to jump right back to work the next day. And Ruth quietly sneaks over to where Boaz is sleeping. She uncovers his feet and lays down. But we're still left with this idea, that is strange. Why are you going to go lay down at a man's feet? And, and why uncover him? What is that about? What in the world is going on? I don't think this is something seductive. I don't think this is something sinful. But the narrator takes us into Boaz's point of view. Here's what he says, verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So it's like the narrator brings us down into the story, and we get to kind of experience it from, from Boaz's perspective He's startled. He's laying there. His feet have been uncovered. You can imagine this kind of cool breeze blowing through the threshing floor. His feet aren't covered up anymore. That cold breeze wakes him up. And not only does he wake up, but then he looks down and there's a person laying at his feet. I don't know if that's, that's not a normal experience for me. I don't know if that's a normal experience for you, but I, that doesn't happen, right? You don't expect to wake up and there's someone you don't know laying at your feet. It's the middle of the night. And we're talking like dark, dark. Not city dark, like country dark. This is Bethlehem. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. It was so dark. So this is a high tension moment. What's going to happen? Ruth is carrying out the plan. How's this going to go? So Boaz says, who are you? And then Ruth answers and explains why she's doing what she's doing. Verse 9. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is the key phrase for the whole story. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. When Ruth says this, she's using the same words that Boaz said to her shortly after they first met. Back in chapter 2, look with me at chapter 2, verse 11. This is right when Boaz and Ruth first meet each other. And Boaz is showing such kindness and generosity to Ruth. And Ruth says to Boaz, why are you showing me such kindness? I'm not even from Israel. And Boaz says to her, this is chapter 2, verse 11. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land. And you came to a people you didn't know before. 
then pay attention here to verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Boaz says to Ruth, may the Lord fulfill your work. May he complete what you're doing. This God under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And Ruth says to Boaz in chapter 3, verse 9, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth is asking Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. She's invoking the prayer and and blessing he prayed over her a few weeks ago. She's essentially saying, would you be the one God uses to redeem us? Would you be the one God uses to bring us rest? And in asking Boaz to be a redeemer, Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. She's asking him to marry her. Now, this is not a Hallmark Christmas movie, so don't overly romanticize this moment. It's not that, like, they, Boaz wakes up, he finds out it's Ruth, they stare into each other's eyes, they have this incredible chemistry, and she says, will you marry me? That's not exactly what's happening. Ruth makes this request to Boaz, not on the ground of their chemistry, but on the grounds of God's covenant with his people. She says, spread your wings over me, not because you're so amazing and I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That's why she's asking Boaz to do this. That's the, that's the reason behind it. Now, understand, the concepts we see here feel really far away from us. This is not really part of our culture, not really part of our society. Kind of a strange deal going on here. But they're important to understand even for us now because as we understand them, we see what God was doing then so we can understand what God's doing now. Here's a little background on why Ruth is calling Boaz a a redeemer. When God sought out the people of Israel to be his people, he established them as his own family. They were the people of God, the people of the Lord. No other nation, no other group of people could claim that, only the people of Israel. And the commands he gave them were to teach them how to care for one another in the same way he cares for them. So I want you to do this for each other, do this for each other, don't do this, don't do this, all in a way to reflect his character and care for them. So they cared for and provided for each other even when they went through failure, even when they went through difficulty, even when they went through tragedy. They did that for each other because the Lord did that for them. And this role of a redeemer It was a really key role in in the Old Testament. I'll read you just a short little section so you can hear how the Lord commanded them with this role. This is from Leviticus 25. I think it will be on the screen. This is just a short little section. Leviticus 25, verses 25 to 27. Hear how the Lord talks about what the role of the Redeemer is here so you can understand what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. The redeemer was the next closest family member who had the responsibility and the resources to rescue a needy relative out of their troubles. 
So if a person in your family became really poor and they could not own their own land and harvest their own land and provide for their family anymore, the next closest relative would be the redeemer and go with their own resources, with their own cost, take care of them and provide for them and make sure they could keep their land and their family and keep things going. The reason they were doing this was because they wanted people to keep land. They wanted the family name to keep going. They wanted these customs to stay in place. But why? That's the question we have to ask. Why? What's the big deal about land and inheritance and keeping the family name going? It's a big deal because it's a lot more, it's about a lot more than just land and inheritance and keeping the family name going. In the Old Testament, when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, and brought them into the promised land, he gave different tribes, different clans, different families, parts of the promised land. And that land, and this is the, this is the connection. I know I'm kind of swinging us out wide and bringing us back in, but we have to have this background. That land that God gave them was a physical representation of your share in God's promises. You own this land in the promised land, and that showed our family is part of the promises God is carrying out for his people. So to lose that land meant you no longer had a share in God's promises. What were the promises? Well, there's a lot of them, but they all flow out of one main promise that God made back in Genesis 3. That one day God was going to reverse the curse of sin and restore all creation back to the paradise he created it to be. All other promises in the Bible flow out of that one promise. I'm going to come and do away with sin and evil and tragedy and hardship, and I'm going to bring perfect relationship between me and people and between people and each other forever. The reason that it matters that a family keeps part of the promised land that God has given them, and the reason it matters the family name keeps going through a son is because it displayed the passing on of God's promises from generation to generation to generation. It showed God's promises can't be broken. It showed his plans can't be stopped. His purposes can't be defeated. Each generation pushes the promises forward. And if the generation stops, the promises stop. And if the promises stop, there's no Christmas. And if there's no Christmas, there's no salvation for you and me. So this may seem like this one small little family in the middle of nowhere where this doesn't really have anything to do with our lives. If this doesn't go well, you and I have no hope for eternity. That's what's at stake here. So this zoomed out picture zooms in on this one family and shows us what's really at stake with Ruth and Naomi in this situation. And Ruth is ultimately asking Boaz, Will you be the one to keep God's promises going to the next generation? I'm not claiming they understand all of the ins and outs of that or even the long term of what God is going to do, but that was certainly God's goal in what was happening here. So the tension's high again. Ruth has taken a huge risk. She's asked Boaz this question. How's he going to respond? Verse 11. He says to her, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That's great news. Like she took this risk, she asked the question, Boaz says, yes. Everyone knows of your character and your faith. I'm going to do this for you. Well, don't get too ahead of yourself. Verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. 
yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. What? There can't, this cannot be true. The narrator wants you to feel the letdown of this. This whole time, he's been setting us up to like Boaz. We've seen his character. We've seen how kind he is. We've seen his faith in the Lord. And Boaz says, I want to do that, but there's actually a redeemer, a closer relative than me. It's as if we've seen Boaz this whole time and just grown to love this man and appreciate all that he is. And now the camera pans over to this other guy, the other redeemer, who just like scratches his belly and burps in this moment. No, not like, not him. We want Boaz. The camera pans over and he's like, what's up, girl? It's like, no, we don't want that guy. So it feels a little bit like a letdown here. Like we thought Boaz was going to be the guy. But he says there's another one that's supposed to do it. It's kind of complicated now of what's going to happen. It's not neat and tidy, and life is not neat and tidy for us. But the Lord lets it be that way sometimes, and he lets it be that way here. God's still working. But there's a lesson for all of us here, including Naomi and Ruth, but even for those who trust Christ, who trust the Lord today, that God works his purposes in all kinds of situations, not just the situations that seem ideal to you and I. And there are so many variables that Naomi and Ruth cannot control, but Ruth and Naomi served a God, and we serve a God that is able to control all the variables. And he's working things to a specific plan. All right, we're coming to the end of the chapter here. You, you can imagine the kind of emotions that Ruth felt. She took this huge step. Boaz says, yes, but. And you can feel the, the letdown, the why did I come here? What, what, is this, what does this mean now? Is somebody ever going to provide for us? Is someone ever going to rescue us? It's hard to hear, but the story's not over. Verse 14. Skip with me to chapter 3, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley. This is a lot. He's showing great kindness. And put it on her. He's given her so much, he, helps to, he has to help her put it on so she can carry it. Boaz is showing, I want to provide for you. I want to protect you. I'm able to do this but I just don't know how that's going to work out yet. And it looks like a pledge from Boaz. He's going to keep his word. He's going to make sure someone redeems them, even though there's not a permanent fix yet. He's not done, and the Lord's not done. Ruth's going to return to Naomi, who we know has been waiting up all night to hear how this went. She gave Ruth the plan. Ruth is going with the plan. She's been waiting. Here's what happens when she comes back. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Listen closely to what Boaz said to Ruth before she went back to Naomi. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Do you remember the way Naomi described herself when she came back to Bethlehem? She said, I went away full but the Lord brought me back, what? Empty. And now Boaz is saying, you must not go back empty-handed 
to your mother-in-law. It's the same word. Same word. Naomi is no longer going to be empty. The Lord is replacing her emptiness with fullness, and this is just the beginning. And same for Ruth. Each time she leaves Naomi empty, she comes back full. Each time. Through the work of the Lord here, the empty are being made full. This is what Mary proclaims, as we've seen in Luke, in Luke chapter 1, what Mary proclaims when she finds out what the Lord's going to do through her. She says, he has filled the hungry with good things. And this isn't just those who are physically hungry, but also those who are spiritually hungry. And then Naomi's instructions to Ruth here at the very end give us a good bookend on the chapter. Here's the very last verse, chapter 3, verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter for today. The chapter began with Naomi saying, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? And then here at the end, she says to Ruth, wait until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter for today. She says, wait. Stay put, be patient. He's not going to rest until you have rest. He's not going to rest until you're redeemed. The encouragement to wait is the encouragement to trust. All Ruth and Naomi could do was wait. There was nothing else they could do. They could trust Boaz's character. They could trust the Redeemer's character, that trust that he would do what he said he would do. I'm going to blow these candles out because y'all are looking at them a lot right now. And we'll end this way. This chapter does not end with amazing clarity about what God is doing. Ruth doesn't know if Boaz can be the family redeemer. She doesn't know what he's going to do. And faith doesn't mean you and I see the outcome. It means we trust the character of the God that's in control of the outcome. Our God is trustworthy. His timing is perfect. His wisdom plans everything for our good. And we have every reason to trust and wait patiently for him. How do I know that? Not just because of the story of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. But we know the Bible is one book with one author and one main subject. And that one main subject that the entire Bible is about is Jesus Christ. Everything God does through his people in his word in some way points us to Jesus. And the connection here is that just as Boaz promised to redeem Ruth, God himself has promised to redeem us. He didn't come to redeem us out of one hopeless situation. He came to redeem us out of a hopeless eternity. If Boaz is going to redeem Ruth and Naomi, it's going to cost him a lot. And when Jesus came to redeem, it cost him his own life. He secured our eternal redemption through his death on the cross. The cost has been completely and fully paid. And Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 11, you see this on the screen as well. Listen to what Jesus says to people like me and you. Matthew chapter 11, this is verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because of Christ, there's no more performing there's no more needing to impress anybody. There's no more working. You come to him and you find rest for your souls. But just as Ruth awaited this final solution, 
We know God's work is not done here. We know God is going to bring a more complete rest. And it's as if, like Naomi says to Ruth, God says to us, wait, because this man will not rest until it's finished. And you're going to see this more fully and clearly next week in Ruth chapter 4. As we wrap up this morning, we come recognizing we are a people that need rest. We live in a world that needs rest. Our world is full of all kinds of unrest, of sickness and death and injustice and loneliness and conflict. But Ruth chapter 3 shows us that deep soul rest is possible. Even right now, if we, like Ruth, trust our Redeemer to finish what he started. Like one of the church fathers said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee, in the Lord. So may this Christmas be an invitation to all of us to rest in Christ.